You are listening to a podcast from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. Hi, good afternoon and welcome to Clinical Pearls. I'm your host, Tracy White, and I am delighted to have uh, two incredible people here with me today, Dr. Richard Taylor and Ms. Jennifer Janowacki. So I'm going to let Dr. Taylor go first and just tell us a little bit about yourself, Dr. Taylor. Sure. Thank you, Dr. White. Uh, it's a great privilege and honor to be here today. Uh, I'm an uh, adult nurse practitioner. I'm an assistant professor here at UAB School of Nursing, and I have a faculty practice where I see multiple uh, types of patients uh, and the supportive or palliative care clinic here at UAB. And Ms. Jennifer Janowicki. Yes. So my name is Jennifer Janowicki. I'm a psychiatric mental nurse practitioner. Um, I did my undergrad as well as my master's at UAB while working at the Center for Psychiatric Medicine located at UAB Hospital. And as you can imagine, I definitely come across a variety of patients. Most of them have been homeless or indigent at one point in their lives. Great. And Jennifer gave me permission to call her JJ, which is easier than Genowacki. So um, that's probably what I'll refer to you as, um, JJ. That's how I know you best anyway. Um, so as everyone watching and you guys know, we're here today to talk a little bit about care of patients without homes, um, that patient population. So I'd like to start out by talking with the two of you about what it means to be a homeless person. Um, I know there are some stereotypes associated with that, and I'd really like to talk about that and maybe get past some of those stereotypes. Um, so why don't we start with you, Richard? Um, can you talk a little bit about that for us? Sure. Um, well, you know, I work with homeless patients uh, a good bit and being homeless without a permanent residence, um, you know, people that you see on the street uh, and people that come into contact with us at various points and their homelessness. Um, many of them have chronic medical issues. And, um, and as JJ had mentioned earlier, uh, uh, some of them do also have uh, mental uh, issues. Um, and I think, you know, sort of getting past the stereotype that most people have as well. They want this lifestyle. This is why they're out there. They could do better. Uh, etc. is a huge barrier to providing holistic care to this patient population and you know um, breaking through those stereotypes is really important for us um, myself and uh, people like providers like JJ to really be the sort of the champions to uh, for that uh, particular uh, stereotype breaking that stereotype Right. Um, JJ, what experience do you have with that label or advice for us to get past that? Yeah, so I think one of the biggest issues is, you know, I think homeless is almost synonymous with dirty or less than, um, it's, which to me is concerning considering that they don't even have access to the basic resources such as soap and hot water. So even when we look at something as simple as let's say a staph infection, that we all have staph living on our skin. Uh, sorry if that just surprised a lot of you, but if you're not able to bathe regularly, then you're gonna expose yourself to things that wouldn't even be more than a 30 second thought to the rest of us. Um, and so as Dr. Taylor Richard had mentioned, um, 
I think it's a thought of why don't they just do? Well, there's a lot of steps before the actual action can take place. And I think we forget about that a lot of times. I think that that is, that's so true. And myself included, I, I will be honest and transparent about that. Um, that those thoughts have been in my mind as well, and I'm a healthcare provider. Richard, what were you gonna say? Yeah, I'd just like to uh, take a point from JJ. I think particularly during the COVID time, you know, when um, the homeless would normally go into a store or, a, for example, here in Birmingham, the bus station to uh, use the restroom or to get a drink of water, uh, all those facilities were closed. And we did not make accommodations for those folks like, you know, putting outside toilets or some other access. So the COVID time really has uh, accentuated that particular um, deficit of self-care. Their ability, like JJ said, most, you know, they, most of them would love to take a shower and most of them would love to have a bathroom. Most of them would love to have toilet paper, you know, so it really brought those things to the forefront. I didn't even consider that even when we were talking about this in preparation for today, mm -hmm. I didn't consider the effect that that would have. Um, so what's the difference between a transient person and a homeless person? Is there a difference? Um, JJ, yes. I think we talked about it. Yeah. So basically the simple definitions are that homeless simply means without a permanent roof over your head, AKA less of a home. Uh, transient is more of a moving person and whether it means that they're moving intentionally because of secondary gain, it could be because they're trying to escape some type of violence. It could be because they were in search of a better opportunity. It could be a refugee. It could be an evacuee from a natural disaster. Anyone who is not in their place of origin, though, and tends to move is considered transient. Um, and they really do have a different cultural identity and lifestyle amongst them. Um, I would say within the psychiatric world, we deal with probably 75% homeless, 25% transient, um, specifically because mental health can be, well, it is a chronic illness, um, and it can be difficult to manage all of the resources based on the community you came from. So Jefferson County, for example, um, is kind of a hot spot for several different counties and states because they know we have, or believe we have, all of the resources to take care of everyone's population. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Understood. Richard, have you experienced the same thing? Yes, and I think it's really a good point that, um, you know, the difference sort of between the homeless and the transient, and I'll, you know, I'll just say this, and perhaps this isn't the most politically correct thing, but um, from many, to JJ's point about uh, oftentimes hubs or counties that are uh, perceived as having a lot more resources, sometimes um, people will give um, uh, a homeless person a bus ticket. Okay, well, just go to uh, Jefferson County, or I've had actually the uh, police bring people from uh, their county to here and sort of um, uh, let them out in Jefferson County, you know, <laughs> close to UAB, of course, you know. <laughs> so I, I think right. people, people get here by different ways. Um, That's really interesting. I didn't know until you told me that that actually happened. <laughs> um, so that really 
must overwhelm certain systems with people bussing in here. Um, and mm -hmm. so I, I, I can't even imagine how difficult, and we'll talk a little bit about the strain on the system um, that that might cause a little bit later. But first I want to get into how did you guys get into this type of patient care? Um, so Richard, do you want to go first with that and just tell me how you got started with this? Sure. I think seeing patients in a clinical setting uh, was really how I got started, you know, and uh, seeing patients that have very limited resources and uh, when we give them uh, a medication or say, as JJ said, okay, you've got a staph infection, you're going to need to uh, treat this and this is how you treat it and you need to go to Walmart and you need to get X, Y, and Z uh, products and you need to bathe on a regular basis, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, seeing that uh, that was not a possibility and there were very limited resources uh, for uh, this patient population. And it requires a whole, really a whole team, uh, an interdisciplinary team to effectively manage and help treat these patients. And so I saw the, the gap in care and I said, wow, we have to, I have to do something. And so, you know, I started um, working more with the homeless, um, more with agencies, uh, but working, you know, it's, one-on-one -on -one with homeless and when I see them on the streets stop and talk to them and um, so that's really how I got started you know I, um, I it's so interesting to me you say that so easily you know I just work with them one-on-one -on -one, boots on the ground on the street and it's that's difficult you make it seem very easy um, and you're you know both of you have such genuine souls that maybe it does come easy to you but it seems a little scary to a lot of people, even people who want to help. Um, again, myself included, if I'm being honest about it. So how, Richard and then JJ, I know you'll, you know, you, you have an opinion and I want to hear that too, but JJ, uh, J Taylor, <laughs> Dr. Taylor, um, how do you do that? Like, how do you approach a person on the street? Not you, but me maybe. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate your concern for safety, and that's always the first thing that we need to consider. And I'm not encouraging everybody to go out and start meeting everybody on the street and being, you know, that uh, it, it requires some um, some thought. You know, when you obviously see patients that are in distress and from a, a psychiatric standpoint or uh, that don't appear approachable, it's best not to perhaps approach those folks. But certainly, I think just being, you know, I use my grandmother's golden rule, how would you like to be treated? If you were on the street, if I pass you, Tracy, on the street, and I say, oh, well, hey, Tracy, you know, and most homeless folks uh, that you will see on a regular basis in a particular area, and people just walk by them. So the first step is just being, you know, human, seeing them as a human, uh, and not, as JJ said, as a dirty thing that uh, is cast off. Um, so just stopping and say, hey, my name's Richard. What's your name? And tell me your story. And most of them want to do that and will start. And that's just just being real, I think, and just being human. JJ, can you tell us a little bit about how you got started with this patient population and kind of the same thing? How do you approach a patient on the street? Yeah, so, um, you know, 
candidly, I want to say I first started dealing with homeless patients when I joined healthcare uh, because I think a lot of us, because of our stereotypes or misconceptions, don't even realize how many of these types of patients we encounter on a regular basis. Um, and so I think short of working in a private practice that doesn't state, take state insurance, you have actually interacted with these people. Um, you know, it, it's sad that a lot of these patients feel shameful of their circumstances. Um, and it probably took literally a life or death emergency for them to even come in to seek help. Uh, regarding being on the street, uh, to Richard's point, yeah, just say hi like treat them as if a human being. So for example, I was thinking about this last night preparing for this conversation. And I thought, you know, if we all saw a poor little puppy that was whimpering and looked cold and dirty, um, I think the majority of us would intrinsically want to reach out and help this helpless creature. So why do we then turn a blind eye or react with disgust when it's a fellow human being. I, I think that's something that we need to ask ourselves, where is that prejudice or, um, I don't wanna say hate, some of it's apathy or, you know, I guess fear that it could happen to us. Uh, you know, even in mental health, I think there's a lot of unknowns, but I think it's something we have to challenge ourselves with um, before we can deal with it externally. But at the end of the day, I mean, they're humans, right? So true. and. Uh... And that really strikes a chord with me as someone who has three stray dogs that live in the house now with me. I mean, that really does. That's a great way to think of it. So thank you for that. You know, so after that first hello, um, you've established that this person both needs and wants some help from you. How do you establish a trust relationship with them? Because I can imagine that their experience with healthcare has perhaps not been great so far. Um, so JJ, how, how do you take the next step with them and actually get them the help that they need and want? I think that's an important distinction too. Do they want it? Yeah, so a lot of times we discuss, you know, patient-centered care, um, which I think depending on the specialty, some of us do it better than others. Um, and getting the patient on board with the plan, and this includes if I'm going to tell the patient this is the medicine you need, explaining why, giving them resources of where they can find it, maybe getting a good RX coupon, maybe getting them on a state-funded program to help pay for their medication for a month or two, and understanding that it's not as simple as writing the prescription, giving the orders, and then discharge. There is a lot more involved, especially with this type of population, and understanding um, you know, where they're going once they leave our doors and how difficult it might be, as Richard had mentioned earlier in the conversation, for them to be able to go to Walmart and pick something up. How are they getting to Walmart? I mean, how, how are they even going to be, can they read? I mean, so it's one of these, do they have to take the medicine with 350 calories of food? Is that going to happen realistically for this person? And so I think it involves a lot more, and the more questions you ask and the more you involve them in the process, that trust will form. Richard, you told yeah. us a, gave us a great example of the gentleman that you helped, or you physically took him how did you begin that relationship with him and then follow through with that? Sure, sure. So I um, met a gentleman on uh, under a bridge 
uh, in downtown uh, Birmingham that I saw had a walker and I saw him sort of hobbling along. And so I just pulled over and I said, hey, you know, uh, do you need some help? <laughs> and what's going on? And so over time, he said, well, you know, usually the first thing is, well, can you spare some money? And so I'm not going to get into a debate about what you're going to use the money for or anything along those lines. Uh, usually that's an avenue to show trust for me. Open the door. I gave him some money and said, well, do you need some food? Okay. And then that started the relationship. And then the big thing is, you know, I let him into my car. And so some people are going to have some really big issues with that and say, oh, can't, I'm not putting anybody in my car, which is good. You know, you need to think through that, but brought him food. So that began to build a trusting relationship. And then I came back daily and said, hey, you know, um, here's some food. I just wanted to stop by and see how you were doing. So I got to know him better over time and realized that he had fallen and uh, actually crushed his hip and he was out on the street trying to get, um, you know, going to the emergency room periodically. Uh, so um, I just consulted my colleagues and got him an appointment with orthopedics, took him to the appointment uh, in orthopedics. And I'll, you know, I think I told you the story where other people, it was a very, very busy orthopedic clinic. Multiple people were going before him. And he just, as to JJ's point uh, earlier about being dirty and uh, feeling less than, he said, see, this is how they treat homeless people. They, you know, they, I've been out here waiting, which was only about 30 minutes, but, you know, he saw other people going ahead. So the perception immediately was that I'm at the lowest rung. Nobody's going to pay attention to me. Uh, so, you know, going, I got up and went to the front desk knowing that, you know, uh, that other people had an appointment before him and said, hey, I just want to make sure that you haven't forgot Joe. <laughs> fake name. Uh, and so, um, you know, just to show that, you know, that trust and you can, you know, I'm advocating for you. I, that is such a, a, just a strong story because I can imagine that he probably wouldn't have stuck around if he was feeling those feelings and thinking that's the way he was being oh, treated, no. then perhaps he would have walked out the door and said, forget it. I'm not coming back. So to have um, that advocate, there. Yeah, and I've sat with him during the uh, appointment. You know, I knew the orthopedic surgeon, uh, you know, so, and what really upset him as to the point of, you know, appropriate care, if you were a person that had that kind of pain, he was in constant pain, and so they offered him tramadol as opposed to an opioid uh, because he was homeless and they couldn't quote unquote, trust him with the medication. But you know, you got to work through that. Okay, can I hold the medicine? Can I go give it to him? No, we don't give we don't give homeless folks uh, opioids. And so this is a the, a culture that I really want to you know kind of highlight that caring for homeless people uh, is different. They have the same needs as anybody else, but there are multiple um, barriers to uh, them receiving. And so we all have to advocate for that appropriate care. Right, right. Um, JJ, what are your thoughts on that and in, in those barriers that, that we're talking about? We just named a couple here, but I'm sure that there are more. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, one of the biggest issues, and this is, you know, when we were rehearsing for this, is 
um, and it's a paradigm that's kind of shifted in general with, you know, the burgeoning rise in the cost of healthcare, and, you know, people aren't really using their primary care providers as much as they should. And so, especially with this population, the emergency department is now a one-stop shop that when they are presenting, of course, it's never one thing that's off with them, right? So you have an emergency physician that is used to dealing with trauma, you know, what they should be, emergency care. So if you have a homeless person that comes in, maybe they have a gunshot wound, something similar to that. They go through trauma care, they get that all healed up and everything else. Well, now we find out that the person has complete uncontrolled diabetes type two, um, they may have high cholesterol, they may have had a cardiac event, possibly from drug use prior. It doesn't matter. They may have ulcer, cellulitis, all of this. Well, the buck keeps getting passed from department to department in terms of, okay, whose real responsibility is it to care for the entire patient? Um, I know one of the worst cases that we had was a poor homeless woman came in, hypothermia. Um, they managed to save her and then started having all of these secondary sequela that Medical no longer wanted her. They claimed that it was a mental health issue. Well, overall mental health, we don't necessarily have the medical capabilities. And then now that she's over in mental health, we're now trying to figure out a dispo plan because she's gonna need long-term care. Um, and trying to get someone like that placed into a SNF or some type of rehab facility is almost impossible, um, especially if there's any type of mental health diagnosis. And that could be something as, as simple as depression if they see a mental health diagnosis, all of a sudden there's a big red flag. Um, and it's just, it, it's a spider web. Um, and so there's no real one thing that we can look at to fix um, other than more boots on the ground and doing more field interaction, if you will. These street teams that go out and to Richard's point could bring medication or immunizations or supplies to some of these uh, patients that we have out there. And Richard, yes. do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's a wonderful point is that uh, it goes back to sort of the trust issue. Um, many of the homeless folks are not going to come into a facility and, and, and repeatedly, you know, establish care because they have had, they've been, as JJ says, they've been kind of passed on. And so the trust is one barrier. And how do we, how do we overcome that trust? And I think the um, going out into the community, providing those services without an expectation. I think that's what we oftentimes do when we begin to work with a, a homeless person is we put an expectation. Well, I'm giving you X, Y, and Z, so I expect you to do better, or I expect you to do blah, blah, blah. And the, <laughs> you know, the problem is, you know, I, I just had a guy the other day tell me, he I referred him to an agency and he went and, um, he came in, he was upset, he was depressed, uh, um, and uh, you know, they said, well, do you want to talk? Well, you know, what he interpreted that was, he says, no, and he used an expletive that I will not use, but I don't want to talk, I need action, I need help. And I think that's the first thing, it's just, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I mean, what, what do you, if you're out on the street sleeping under a bridge and you don't have any water, you don't have any food, you know, psychotherapy is probably not going to be the thing that's on the top of your list. <laughs> you know, you're going to think, 
where am I going to eat? You know, uh, do I have a place to sleep? Uh, so beginning to meet those basic needs, like I said, without an expectation that they're going to be good or they're going to do better um, uh, immediately just because you've done something. Uh, you know, you're, you've come to be the savior of the homeless person. <laughs> so perhaps right. I got off a little bit, so I get preachy sometimes. No, Sorry. No, I, yeah. <laughs> no. I was <laughs> Go ahead, JJ, do you have something? Yeah, so um, to Richard's point, and I, this is another one of those like random shower thoughts I had, but we all talk about trauma-informed care, right? That, that's been kind of a, a philosophy moving forward, both in medical school and nursing school. Um, but I think we have our own idea of what trauma and what trauma-informed mm -hmm. care mean. And so yeah. I think it's very important regarding this specific population that their trauma hasn't stopped. So typically as a psych MP, I'm seeing people coming in with either an acute stress reaction, which means it hasn't been going on long enough for PTSD or chronic slash complex PTSD where they had it younger, kind of resolved, then a new stressor happened. And so now they're in crisis mode again. Well, for someone who's homeless, every day has some level of trauma associated with it. And so I think that we really forget that a lot of times. If you can imagine spending a week on the street in an unfamiliar surrounding, uh, not having basic supplies, your personality would probably change a little bit and your expectations of how the world interacts with you are definitely going to change. And so I think it's important, you know, we have the mantra trauma-informed care. I think we have the responsibility as healthcare providers to truly understand what that means based on our demographics. Yes. I, that is such, that's such a great point and something that I had not thought of before when I think about trauma-informed care and what I've learned and know about it, I never included this patient population in my thoughts about that. Um, so yeah, thank you just, for bringing even, you know, the trauma, I see this with exactly, it's a beautiful thing that you've said that because even somebody passing a homeless person on the street, screaming out of the car, get a job, you know, <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> that's a, that's a trauma, that's an insult. And all, on top of already a baseline of a sort of a, a, sort of a river of trauma, and you just added one more thing on top of it. And then you wonder why, you know, they're screaming back or see, you know, uh, act, you know, behaving sort of uh, perhaps what you would perceive as inappropriate, uh, but certainly, um, so yes, I agree. Yeah. Well, that leads great, just perfectly into a question from the audience, actually. Um, so Richard, I'll, I'll let you address this first and then um, JJ, but how, and again, this came from the audience, how do you set boundaries, say for homeless patients that cannot buy their meds? How, how do you decide what you can and what you should do for them? Because I'm thinking, um, just elaborating on the question a little bit, I, you know, how much do you I would provide all kinds of, you know, I'll buy you this, I'll buy you this, I'll get you this. I mean, how do you set those boundaries when you are trying to help but need those boundaries? So, yeah, yeah, boundary setting is um, something that you have to do pretty, pretty quickly. And I think, you know, that trust setting, uh, you know, developing trust first, 
so you're not perceived as oh well you just came along to you know uh, give me grief again you know so um, and I think the most important thing is the Maslow's hierarchy what are what are what do you need most right now what is the most important particularly if it is a, a patient that you've seen in the clinic and thinking about this going back to the street what what medicine do they need? Okay, I'm, I'm saying, you know, JJ said, well, we got to, you know, treat this wound. Okay, so what supplies do you need? And then trying to have the person, and this works sometimes, but a majority of the time not, I'm going to see you back in clinic. I want you to come and see me, you know, back in clinic, and then I'm going to give you more supplies, and I'm going to clean this wound, and we're going to work together. I think... For me, it's that sort of encouraging, I'm here to work with you. I'm not here to uh, tell you what to do. Uh, I'm here to work collaboratively with you. But there are some limits in that. I have to have you come back. Um, you know, I need to see you, blah, blah. So that that's kind of, uh, that's how I do it. I don't know what JJ has to say about that. but. Yeah, so I think um, hopefully this will start your little folder binder resources for you guys. Um, but I think knowing what resources are available out there, specifically with pharmaceuticals, a lot of the big pharmaceutical companies have actually started funds for some of these necessities. Um, so I think it's a matter of priorities, right? Similar to Maslow's hierarchy. So let's say we want them to really take six medications for them to be at their ultimate healthiest ever, right? But realistically, I mean, we have patients that are not homeless that only take one out of the 10 medications they're supposed to, and sometimes not even regularly. So um, I think really explaining with the patient, um, if they know that you are on their team and that ultimately you are going to help them do what's best for them um, and getting them on board with it and, you know, you might have to do a little extra paperwork because they probably don't have access to a computer to be able to file for that free drug. Um, so for us to be able to assist with some of that, um, whether that means a case manager within the office, whether that means compiling like a resource binder for them. But remember, that would have to include directions to the library when they're all open so they can access internet or to HHS or the Jefferson County Public Health Department. We can't assume that everyone has the same accessibility as we do. Um, and even though it's 2021 and most people have cell phones, that doesn't mean they have a data plan to go with it to be able to use Google Maps. Um, and really, you know, and if they look like they don't feel well, if they're not dressed properly, if they haven't bathed, it's probably really nerve wracking for them to even go into some of these places. And so setting the boundaries is very important. You, you need to set realistic expectations. Look, this is what I'm going to be able to apply or assist you with. This is what I need you to work on on your own. And most of them have respect for that. A lot of them, it's the teach a man how to fish, right? We're not just giving out all everything for free. They do have to be motivated to help themselves. Um, and so I think that's important to remember as well. Uh, but like I mentioned earlier, at the end of the day, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And it doesn't matter someone's socioeconomic status. Sometimes they're either going to do the right thing or they're not. And we, we have to be able to live with that. Right. 
Um, someone from the audience commented that um, it would be great to equip a medical bus where we could go into the, the areas and, and help them. So I was going to ask you, JJ, does that relate to Project Homeless? Um, yes, I do. I, of course, you know, in this grand world, if we have unlimited resources, I would have a bus, you know, running every five mile block circuit. Um, but yes, in, in Birmingham every year, um, and if we could somehow mobilize this to a regular occurrence on a smaller level, I, I think it would make just unimaginable change. Uh, but Project Homeless Connect is a one-day event, um, typically end of February, and it's held at the convention center, and it brings all of the resources that most of us don't even think about as being necessary, um, including lawyers, um, people to assist with government documentation, uh, the dental school is there, the nursing school is there, there's mental health resources, there's housing advocates, um, and, and it's all in one place. And then when you actually look at the addresses of these people physically where they would be on a regular basis, they are spread out throughout the entire county. And so now imagine trying to get to each one of these places and you typically line up, it's almost impossible sometimes to make an appointment and you don't know your timeline. And so you can maybe only get one thing done per day. And so how does someone even manage what's most important to get if that's all they can get done? Um, and I think we forget, like I mentioned, the government identification. A lot of these people don't have an ID card, which is the first step. But before that, you need two other pieces of documentation to be able to get that. So I think we forget all of these hoops. Um, and I, I definitely encourage everyone to look at Project Homeless Connect. Um, you don't even necessarily have to be in the healthcare field to volunteer or assist with it in some way. Um, and I, I definitely wish that we could have a little Project Homeless van that we could drive around and um, you know take it to the streets. Yeah. That would be amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. JJ, we're gonna we're about to have to wrap things up. So, um, besides the project homeless, what other resources um, would you give to nurses, healthcare providers that want to help with this patient population? How, how can they figure out how to do that? Yeah, so we'll post um, the website, but One Roof is a phenomenal um, collaboration of different resources, and if you go to their website. Um, it can direct you to pretty much any questions you have and give you links to other both federal and state level projects. Um, it's an amazing organization. They are um, one of the main, I guess, partners of Project Homeless Connect. And so that, uh, the Jefferson County Public Health Department, uh, their website, they do have many different resources as well. If you are close to UAB, um, reaching out to the Psychiatric Emergency Services Department located within the Emergency Department has binders of resources. Um, and they would definitely be willing to help because it takes more pressure off of them. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Richard, yeah. do you have any resources to add to that? No, I think those are all great resources. And wherever you are, um, most states or most uh, large cities have some uh, community-based homeless outreach service. Many churches do. Uh, so I think those are, are great places to start. Um, so wherever you are, there are, are usually some type of community 
Action Group for Homeless. And there's national, uh, so you just Google those things. Okay, great. So I'd like for each of you to give us a takeaway for the audience. If they remember nothing else but this last thing that you tell them, what would you want them to know? So Richard? Well, I think what I'd like for people to remember is that the homeless are human. They deserve care regardless of their situation. They have unique needs that we as healthcare professionals have a responsibility to address. Perfect. And JJ? Um, I mean, the simplest thing for me is don't make assumptions. I think, I think we all forget that. And I think we have a lot of undiagnosed bias within ourselves. And I know it's hard to take an introspective look into that, but I think it's think first before you speak. And where is your discomfort coming from? And I would just challenge everyone to interact a little bit more. It doesn't mean scoop up every single person you see on the street and bring them in to save them, but um, really start challenging yourself in just normal human interactions and see how far that takes you. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's great. Yeah. yeah, it really is. Um, and I, I'm, I, will, I will do that, um, absolutely. So unfortunately, we are out of time. Um, I could talk to you two about this for a much longer because it is a much bigger problem, but I hope we've hit um, some important points today and I think we have. So I appreciate both of you for being here and talking about this, um, you know, having this much needed discussion with me about this. Um, so thank you again. Thanks for listening to Clinical Pearls from the UAB School of Nursing Health Network. This podcast is also available in video form at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash nursing network.